0: Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Crime Spot, the podcast in which Felix and I discuss trends and phenomenon of organized crime
1: hi there we're so happy to have you tuned in for our first episode in 2021 we hope the year's off to a good start for you and we already have a bunch of episodes lined up for the upcoming month from piracy issues to human trafficking networks to waste trafficking to name just a few and we're really looking forward to discussing these topics with all of you which brings us to today's episode
0: absolutely um today we're going to be discussing green militarization which is a phenomenon that is unusually widespread, given the fact that many people have not heard of it before. Um, For one, I had never heard of this term before Felix brought it to my attention. So perhaps, Felix, you could explain very briefly what is green militarization. I understand that it's a term that comes up when reading into topics such as wildlife conservation or wildlife crime.
1: Exactly. I first came across it when doing research into responses to wildlife crime. Essentially, and really in my own words, green militarization means employing military approaches, equipment, tactics, and so forth as a mean to implement conservation measures. Some of you may be familiar with the so-called anti-poaching units who operate in many national parks to protect wildlife. One famous example includes the all-women APU called Akashinga, to which National Geographic dedicated a documentary called The Brave Ones.
0: Super interesting. And I think what is so particular about this um, topic, it's that green militarization is quite a controversial um, issue. And so to help us better understand its phenomenon, its origins, its consequences, we were lucky enough to interview Anwesha Dutta. She's a political ecologist and holds a PhD in conflict and development studies from Ghent University. And she's actually now in Norway and she's working as a postdoctoral researcher for the Christian Michelson Institute.
1: Anwesha, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Esther and Felix, for uh, having me today on this dark morning from Norway.
1: You recently published an article called Forest Becomes Frontline, in which you explore the nexus between green militarization and counterinsurgency efforts. Before going more into detail, maybe you could give us a, an overview about green militarization, its genesis, and its different dimensions.
2: So um, I think to understand uh, green militarization, we first have to, you know, go back uh, and trace its roots and military or armed roots that are manifested through the use of violence against local communities have been historically embedded in conservation because it is evident in the ways in which protected areas and national parks were created around the colonial world. And although the intensification of these methods have been occurring since the 80s, because since the 80s, we have seen a rise in armed poaching. Basically, it was in 2009 that there was a substantial rise in levels of poaching of iconic species. So particularly of rhinos and elephants uh, taking place in sub-Saharan Africa. And this resulted in a sense of urgency. So there was this urgent need to save this species because this was impinged on uh, fears of extinction. And this ushered in a more violent phase in biodiversity conservation. So what we saw was that across several African states, and this was also funded by international conservation agencies, they responded to this crisis by adopting what um, more conceptually uh, Libby Lundstrom has coined as green militarization. This has also been conceptualized as green violence or what, um, Rosalind Duffy has talked about as war for conservation. So these are, you know, these concepts that are used to talk about uh, this kind of violence, using violence to protect uh, biodiversity. Now, what does it really mean? So militarized conservation basically entails using military and paramilitary. So military-like actors, techniques, technologies and partnership in pursuit of conservation. And although this started in Africa, uh, more physical and brutal forms of violence continue to reign across national parks in protected areas in Africa and beyond. So we have also instances of this happening in Asia, South America, among others. Now, what do we see? How does it manifest in the African context? Mostly national armies, rebel groups, other armed actors, they have taken on a very key role in conserving biodiversity and protecting charismatic species from mostly heavily armed poachers by using the use of force and violence.
1: One quick question, if I may interrupt. This use of force must have been detrimental for those living in or close to protected areas. So, how has this been justified?
2: Of course, there are local populations living around these areas and then the force and the use of violence also then goes on against these communities. One of the ways that this approach has found clout and justification is by aligning with the global responsibility to protect argument, and that is associated with the large-scale international humanitarian intervention of the past 20 years. Now, what has this done, this form of conservation that is rooted in brute violence, it has led to the development of a very close connection between conservation and paramilitary methods. And that pushes indigenous inhabitants who are residing in these spaces to what scholars like, you know, in a more um, academic sense, Dressler uh, term as violent enclosures, meaning that it further perpetuates a model which is a fortress conservation model, basically how you seal off areas and mark territories which would only be for these species to live and and by deploying forms of violence. And then it excludes communities' access to this land and to these forest and natural resources. So what do we see is that protected areas have transformed into spaces of violence. And in these spaces, human rights violations occur, and violence against humans have almost become accepted to court in the defense of the environment to give you some example is that uh, what this has done, so now to further this conversation, so the discussion around green militarization, it encompasses kind of an intersection between counter-insurgency and conservation. And we have seen that happen in fragile conflict contexts like in Congo DRC, where Through policies, you have actions and policies like shoot to kill, property demolition, displacement, evictions. And verbal and physical forms of intimidation, surveillance, and coercive patrolling. So basically, there are these groups um, um, groups that have been raised, military units, which carry out such practices against so-called heavily armed poachers. And it is the local communities that kind of get stuck in the crossfire between these other actors.
1: Yeah, I would like to pick up on the last thing that you mentioned, and that is the verbal violence, which I think is important to acknowledge that it's not only physical violence that we talk about. We don't only talk about the implementations of shoot-to-kill policies or the equipment of rangers with rifles, but we also talk about social stigmatization that follows from criminalizing certain ethnicities that are while more often engaging in poaching due to a variety of social factors so on one hand this is a justified criticism to Korean militarization on the other hand there's quite an overlap in skills required for people that join the military or for people who work in conservation and have to patrol very large remote areas they have to have certain survival skills so what do you answer to people who say look green militarization is not without flaws but we apply it because there's there's just such an overlap and skills required
2: yeah that's that's an interesting question because that's how um it, it it started right so so in the sense that you kind of create a terrain and that becomes like a warlike uh situation and that's why duffy is talking about uh war for biodiversity so it's a war to save the species or some people have even called it, so in the Indian context uh, where I work, uh, these ecological task forces, which are part of the Indian army, were raised um, because they, they they called it um, uh, conservation on war footing. So basically you do conservation the way you would be fighting a war uh, on the border with your enemy. And this is highly problematic because you are not fighting an enemy. You are actually carrying out these processes in your own nation states against your own people. And that makes it highly problematic and that most of these people. So clearly there is an argument against uh, um, crime syndicates and organized crime. And in many cases, this has been linked to terrorism funding. So to give you an example, um, there was this case uh, where they, they, they called ivory as the white gold of jihad but and all these ivory poachers were termed as uh, terrorists who then were linked to al-shabaab but there was only one study that very um that could link or make such connections but it wasn't even well done so it fell flat so So the justification for green violence, I think, totally outweighs uh, all the other negative repercussions this has against human populations living in that area. And this also has to be taken in the context of... um, The laws, right? So one way you say is that is that we need to control organized crime. And how do we do this? We do this through law enforcement. And so you have these certain legal frameworks under which you persecute uh, poachers who you then say are part of uh, syndicates and gangs. But at the same time, we have to see that in most of these countries, these uh, laws are actually rooted in colonial era legislations, which to begin with, were made by displacing people from their traditional habitats and nature. So people like Rosaline or myself or Bram, we really want to understand these root causes rather than giving a symptomatic treatment of course we understand that poaching is on the rise that there is uh there are heavily armed poachers and that there are encounters between poachers and um guards and here we also have to understand the positionalities of the actors carrying out uh these activities so there have been cases in zimbabwe um Uh, I think even in South Africa, where war veterans uh, of the Iraq and Afghanistan war war, were recruited um, and given anti-poaching training. And this was justified as a form of them dealing with PTSD. But there were like a lot of uh, opposition from the local population who felt that These guys were using uh, force. And as you mentioned, force need not always be brute physical force. And that is where I talked about soft form of militarization, that this could be structural. So, uh, for example, Esther talks about development aid. So how these NGOs would give aid uh, or, or bilateral organization in such places and that aid would lead to the building of schools or where what they would try to do is kind of brainwash or try to uh, make the local population kind of fit into that kind of a framework. And that also kind of alienates them from their traditional forms of livelihoods.
0: I, I just want to pick up on two things that you said the first was about many of what they, the Greek militarization does is entrenched in colonial era legislation. And I was just wondering, how is it perceived, like the concept of conservation, is it perceived as a colonial concept that has been imported and that they local populations and in, indigenous populations kind of have to assimilate and integrate? And once again, it's this idea of you know, the white colon having this kind of moral high ground now on the environment um, as well. And then I was hoping you could also expand, it's completely different, but on how um, green militarization kind of reflects this shift of the relationship between the military and the environment um, that you touch upon. And I think it's in the conclusion of your of your article about how the military was once a destructive force against the environment, and we and we see that as a shift
2: now as a protective force. Yeah, essentially it is. So essentially, in most of uh, the post-colonial worlds, um, conservation. Uh, me, meant that um, in in the in the pre-colonial times, it was Britishers or you know whoever. In in I work on India, so it was the British who were who had these game laws and they could hunt as much as they wanted, and the communities were really kept out of it except for the elites. So you had the kings who could have uh, some access to these uh, game reserves, and then in India we still have the most of our forest act are still based on these colonial legislations. To give you a very um, simple example, we have in India someone called the Parthi tribes. And the Parthis are historically a hunting tribe. So what the Parthis did historically is they hunted a lot. At the same time, they were also part of this resistance against the British. So then the British criminalized these uh, some 50-odd tribes because they were resisting against them and they were hunting. So they were taking the space where the Britishers were using to hunt game. And when the tribe was criminalized, a criminalized uh, criminalizing a tribe was also a social act. Although in the 70s, the Pardis were decriminalized and they are now a denotified tribe, but in the larger society, they are still considered criminals. Until today, they are uh, they live close to the forest, but they are a nomadic tribe. They don't have they have very low indicators when it comes to education, when it comes to health and access to other services. And each time there is a crime in the forest, a party person is automatically arrested. So we can see how there are continuities of historical forms of injustices even in today's era. And that makes conservation particularly a very kind of a sensitive arena because we really cannot talk about, you know, conserving iconic species versus, you know, the human nature divide. What this militarization does is that it furthers or increases this human-nature divide. And that is very dangerous because IUCN wants its 2050 goal to be living in harmony with nature. And how do you really do that? And that is what most of us have been talking about, that you cannot just use legal frameworks. You have to see the history of this legal framework, the social, political, historical context within which these were made, and the way people relate um, to this framework, to give another example, uh, poaching sometimes have been used as an act of resistance because often organized uh, uh, laws or legislation against organized crime does not really separate between um uh, commercial poaching as opposed to hunting for subsistence, and that can again uh, be a problem. Um, Yet another example from my field site in Assam, where it is a national park with the success story of conservation. But each time you go there, there are instances of extrajudicial killings. Uh, Basically, now poaching. uh, So every national park wants to achieve a zero poaching target. Now, to achieve a zero poaching target, what I see is I found a lot of similarities between interacting with police officers and forest officers. So the police, so I also work in an area which has a history of armed insurgency. So the police officer, I remember um, a few years ago, this is a senior police officer, uh, said to me, here, meet my junior. In the last week, he shot down two militants. He's doing very well. And the forest officer tells me, oh, in the last uh, few months, we shot down three poachers. We are doing very well. And this goes back to what Felix was saying as to the similarities. But I don't think um, conservation or conservation laws can be compared to um, laws for robbing a bank because they are very different. So if that answers your question. Um And now, going to the second part on on the military, yeah, I find the, the 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 role of the changing uh nature of the military uh very interesting because, as I have also written, and I think um uh, Lundström also writes about that, is that the military has diverged from its uh traditionally assumed responsibility which was of defending states from external enemies. And so in the South Asian context, the armed forces have been used for disaster relief operation, uh, along with rescue, rehabilitation in times of natural calamities. And especially since the end of Cold War, we see a profound shift that occurred in the state's perception of the role of the military. And, uh, you know, some IR uh, theorists have said that this is due to the collapse of the bipolar system and the U.S.-Soviet rivalry, that internal conflicts and civil wars um, were for- foregrounded and those became more important. And it is this non-traditional role that actually has led to the use of military for nature protection and diversification of its task. That's one. And the second has also been this rehabilitation. So how do you rehabilitate um, ex-war veterans or ex-military personnel? And one of these uh, has been so one of the phrases I use is uh, protecting the earth from protecting the earth with. Uh, protecting your borders with guns to protecting Earth with spades. So the shift from gun to spades. But what has happened in practice is that it is not gun to spades, but it's gun to spades and gun. So it's that the, that these military actors continue to use um, weapons and uh, tactics that they have been using for most of their career. So National Armed Forces uh, have performed very important roles in establishing conservation measures. And often forcibly, actually, across South America, Asia, Africa. Uh, We have also seen this in Guatemala, Colombia, Nepal, Indonesia. And, for example, in Botswana, the protection of its national park is one of the Defence Force's primary uh, responsibilities. And this has also led to the idea of the raising of green armies. So although on the one hand we see that... uh, These armed forces have been involved in conservation, in green practices, but their impact, the environmental impact of these operations are also very high. Um, The whole notion actually of militarized forms of anti-poaching are not new because early game wardens in British colonial administration were often ex-military personnel. So yeah, so I think in that sense, um, it's a very uh, complex relationship. And I think to some extent, it also depends on the context. So in India, it's very interesting, the area where I work, as I said, it has a history of violent conflict. So the army is kind of sometimes synonymous with rape, torture, those kind of things. So it's a jealous faced army, right? And when you send this ecological task force, whose mandate is not really to carry out counterinsurgency, but actually to do conservation, they're wearing the same kind of clothing. And they have told me we do this because we want to elicit some fear from the population so that they feel disciplined. So the army then, so the local population then perceives this force, that unit that goes in to do conservation, same as the other army guys there. Whereas, say, in the Indian state of Uttarakhand or Himachal, there has been a very collegial relationship with the army. So, you know, there is more patriotism uh, in those areas. And usually from every household, someone goes to join the army. So when the ecological task force was raised in those areas, it was very positively perceived with a lot of support from the people. So I think the context also becomes very important, especially in in these cases. And uh, one of the things that I've tried to do is also kind of um, so so far the literature or the discussions have, you know, rightly so uh, more uh, sub-Saharan Africa heavy. So kind of to also move it to the context of South Asia and, and India.
1: Yeah, excellent. Thank you. And uh, yeah, just building up on that. So in the African context, there has been at least some anecdotal evidence of the, I mean, obviously of the involvement of more organized crime gangs and they're profiting from hiring local poachers, uh, which are targeted by certain green militarization efforts. So I was wondering if, like in your article, you outline clearly how, for example, um, green militarization against ca- as a counterinsurgency force sort of is being used and how poaching and illegal logging might um, fuel insurgency efforts so is there also is there also evidence or stories of the involvement of organized crime in the sense of in the sense that organized crime groups buy those poached products or engage in illegal logging and poaching themselves
2: Yes, I wouldn't say no to that, uh, especially in Kaziranga National Park, um, because uh, that that is a very high-profile park, and which has now received quite a, um, it has been a kind of a success story uh, for anti-poaching, and they have traced down uh, most of these um, rhino horns to be going all the way to China through Myanmar, so there are organized crime syndicates there so i i wouldn't say no to that indeed even in the indian context you do have that um and and yes you do need you know and and in kaziranga as well we have seen over the years that these um poaching syndicates often so what the so one of one other strand of my work has been with forest rangers so i have tried to under because I feel that in order to have positive conservation outcomes, you need to understand the actors that carry out conservation on the ground. And primarily the people doing this are the frontline forest workers. And, um, and I call that, you know, humanizing the face of uh, biodiversity conservation. And as I interviewed so many of these uh, forest rangers, it was very clear that most of them had very old weapons, which probably even if they shot it, sometimes it would just backfire and kill them. I mean, it was really bad. And then they tell me that there are poachers coming with AK-47. And what are they supposed to do, right? And that is a real tension there. And, of course, the solution is not green militarization, that in return, you just keep arming these people more. So, yes, there are crime syndicates, and but not all of these are crime syndicates. Also, in most cases, the arrests, when the arrests are made, it is the local person that was used to get access to the forest usually gets arrested. So the rice carrier or, you know, so because it's a long chain of people that help this syndicate and they probably don't even know who they are. Um, so, so, yes indeed there are these syndicates they have been traced to other Indian states they have been uh, known to do cross-border uh, taking this up to China and other Southeast Asian countries but in the Indian case, one of the problems they have is that I was told the moment the the if, even if they know about someone that's involved in these poaching, incidents and probably is a part of organized crime. The moment they leave one of the states, the police cannot really pursue them in the other state. So I think uh, just using violence without really strengthening your legal frameworks within the country will not really help address the problem.
0: It's interesting because I feel like when you you speak, actually I'm hearing... um, an expert on drug trafficking speak. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's the same issues. It's you know the mules and the couriers maybe getting arrested, but that's not really the problem, is it? That it's just vulnerable populations being exploited. Um, but against that against that background, I I don't know because I don't work in um, wildlife and I don't work in environmental policy, but to me their security and environmental policy is something that are quite different and it seems that there needs to be now some kind of necessary convergence if we wish to implement some kind of sustainable, viable environmental policy and at the same time safeguard our parks and our natural resources from organized crime. Um I I don't know what what do you think? Like does there need to be some kind of collaboration between the two or is it too incidental, anecdotal that that we should prioritize environmental um experts, shall we say, in the designing and implementation of, of policy making?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's very important because what seems to be happening is that um there are few actors within the government or, you know, even internationally kind of making these decisions and these policies. And at the end, they are not reflective of uh, the local populations and their needs. Yes, there is a security issue here. I mean, there is no denying that. Um, Even in my field area, you do have... um, years of insurgency and you have to carry out conservation in these fragile contexts and how do you do that and then there is also this thing about do you want to protect nature do you want to do counter-insurgency and you also want to protect your population so I think there needs to be more um open um discussions, because in in India, one of the things they say that doesn't work is that uh, the the environmental laws are not stringent enough. So a poacher barely gets two years or three years in prison, and then they're out. Um, Now, do you want to make that for 10 years? I am not sure if that will help, because the person can also come out after 10 years or can operate from prison. I don't know. But I think there is a need to, you know, like in um, drugs or, you know, crimes, uh, drugs related to crimes, I think there is a need to understand these more social structures. So I think there should be a convergence between social scientists, environmental scientists, policy makers, and they really should be listening to each other. Because right now where the debate is going is people like me or Rosaline are quite in the margins. Most of ecologists probably wouldn't agree with me because they'd be like, yeah, but how do we save the species? But I think the legal framework should be made in a way that it also incorporates... um, The rights of uh, population. Because on the other hand, it's the people that are the ears and eyes of the forest, right? You can start all your surveillance and uh, technological surveillance using drones and all kinds of things. But even in my field area, I saw that at the end of the day, the forest guard would tell me, oh, we get our information from the people. We have set up this village level unit, and people know who come and go out of the fo- out of the um, villages, and people are next to the forest. So, unless you have trust of these people, and people have people feel responsible towards protecting their uh, you know the, the parks where they have historically lived, I I don't think we see we have a necessary way forward.
1: Um. Actually, as the last question, I had written down sort of like what's the alternative to the current approach and i mean you picked on, on that already and i hear a lot of um mentioning of the word the people the communities so is that is that the alternative community based natural resource management can that be a viable alternative path to green militarization
2: I mean it it has it it used to be uh, a community based natural resource management thing and it has been as well in some places I guess to the extent that th- this sort of a model is being pushed is is like um well, what you normally do in, when you say community-based natural resource management, you really mean that people managing their resources for themselves. Of course, there are also problems there because we cannot assume that the, com- the community is a homogeneous entity, that there are no structural inequalities within those communities among different uh, indigenous, ethnic, or non-ethnic groups. So there are a lot of stratifiers there could be of race, class, caste, um, ethnicities. So clearly the community is a very um complex um uh yeah entity. But having said that, I think it is important to take into account the participation of those who are closest to these areas. And even if to some extent you do not really can completely um get them to participate I don't think there should be violence perpetuated against them because that is what is fundamentally wrong. Uh, You cannot shoot people to save your rhino. Um, And and that should not be where um, we should be uh, heading. So clearly, yes, we need, as I said, convergence of different actors, um, stakeholders, and of course, a larger uh, share of participation um, from from the community, keeping in mind their needs. Because often what happens is we say we're involving communities, but we don't really give them rights. Um, or what you do in my field area, I mostly see, they talk about something called alternative livelihoods. So these people have historically dependent on the park and they have used resources from the park to for their livelihoods. And suddenly you come to them and say, oh, I will teach you how to weave baskets Oh, I will teach you how to tailor clothes. Oh, we will make an a ecotourism resort. And is that the solution? Is that what the community really wants? I'm not sure. So <laughs> I think, yeah, this is rather complex, but I would obviously be leaning towards where you have more involvement, for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah and, I, and I think this uh, this entire topic of community involvement and sustainable livelihoods is a, it's a, enough material for for my, many more podcast episodes. Well, uh, Anvesha, looking at the time, um, I think this is all we have time for. We don't want, want to take much more of your morning. Um, thank you so much for, for doing this with us.
2: Thank you so much as well. It was really, really nice to be part of this and talk about uh, the work I'm like so passionate about. So thank you so much.